All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Keo Conversations. I am your host, Mark Champagne, and it is my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game personally and professionally. Today, I am chatting with Ben, who is a remarkable human being. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of What Do You Want to Do Before You Die?, as well as one of the stars of the MTV show, The Buried Life. He is doing a lot of public speaking right now about that journey, along with some of the mental health struggles he went through along that, I guess it's been the last 10 or 12 years now since that that whole journey has been taking place. And he focuses a lot about mindset and mental health and everything you need to really do anything that you want and and, and really foster that mindset. So we talk a lot about reframing your mind and and how to really live a life from that perspective. One other point I'd, I'd love to make to everyone listening, if you're listening to this the day it comes out, which would be August 30th, then that means there's one more day to actually vote for our South by Southwest panel chat. I'll ask you all from the bottom of my heart to please support this conversation. It's really designed to get people talking about mental fitness and removing all the stereotypes and perceptions that that people have in this space so that we really can get to the benefits of living you know, a great life with a clear mind and a focused and, and, and a beautiful mindset. And Ben, I'm happy to say, is one of the panel experts that will be participating in this chat, but we do need your help. So we have one more day. The, the public voting for South by Southwest shuts down on the 31st. I put the link in the show notes. So a huge and sincere thank you for anyone that takes the time to vote. Before we dive into this conversation, please do leave a review if you're loving these chats. They do go a long way. And lastly, this podcast is being supported by Keo, which is our mental fitness app. All of these incredible guests end up in app to help guide you through your daily reflections. So if you're interested in taking that for a spin, head over to the Apple App Store, search KYO, and you will see Keo pop up. Thank you so much. And as always, really appreciate your time, your attention, and have the absolute best day yet. So who are you? So I am someone who stumbled into a bucket list with a group of friends and, uh, it kind of found the meaning of life out of it, I guess. Love it. Yeah. So, well, let's dive into that a little bit. So, I mean, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up was, and you mentioned the bucket list, but I feel like a lot of this started with a 150-year-old poem, you know, titled The Buried Life. So, why don't you just provide a little perspective of of how this bucket list came about and what it, what it is about? Yeah. I was in... University, I was first year university and it was in actually Victoria, BC, so west coast of Canada. And I was coming into university flying high. I had a academic scholarship. I had a, um, I had a, I was actually made the national rugby team. So that was my dream, you know, growing up on the west coast. Big rugby's a big Which sport. huge in the west. Yeah. So, in BC. Yeah. Exactly. So Victoria is the epicenter of rugby Canada. It's where the national team trains. And so, you know, I was surrounded by this um, growing up and it was just like the biggest, it was the biggest thing. So I made the U19 national rugby team. I was, you know, on cloud nine. And and then I started worrying about my, I played fly half, which is like the field goal kicker and the um, the quarterback kind of, you know, it's like calling the plays, taking the field goals, a lot of pressure. And I'd always put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed in everything for whatever reason, you know, we can kind of get into that later. But I... I started worrying about these field goals. I thought, what if I miss an easy field goal at the World Cup, like right in front of the goalposts and blow it? You know, I was, yeah. I couldn't get this, this, these thoughts out of my head. And, um, and they would come in it, at night, right? When most of these things kind of creep into your mind when it's quiet. So they would, they keep me up. I'd worry about this, this, these games and I'd picture missing a kick and the feeling and oh no. Um, and, and so this, I ultimately stopped sleeping, 
because of this. And this lack of sleep digressed into uh, and sort of slid me down into a depression. Wow. Which was, yeah. So this was something I'd never experienced before. You know, it was a, sure. it was a very social, happy, you know, surrounded by a lot of good people, a high achiever. I mean, on paper, I was 10 out of 10, you know, I was doing academic scholarship and then, and, but I ultimately this anxiety and this depression stopped me from going to school, stopped me from going to rugby practice. And so I ultimately dropped out of school and got dropped from the rugby team and became a, a sort of a shut in in my parents' house man really immobilized so i was kind of um i mean stuck is an understatement i was i was crippled by this depression was it all really fast ben like what because yeah when when you first said something like you know you're imagining that you missed that that field goal i mean there's that's one element to keep you up at night but there's there's the other element that you know the more you think about that then you actually start missing them right yeah and so was there was that playing into it at all or did this happen pretty quick and you just you weren't showing up to practice no it took time you know it was um it was slow but it was and it was gradual but it was compounding so it sort of got worse and worse quicker yeah in terms of just my my one of the things that happens I was, I was unable to make decisions i was kind of um, I was paralyzed by indecision, which ultimately would end up make, I would end up making no decision, which was the decision. So to not go basically, <laughs> yeah. so I could decide whether I could go to school or not. And I ended up just procrastinating and not being able to go until it was too late. So I didn't go to school that day, you know, and same with practice. So I missed practice. So this, this happened slowly and, um, but it got scarier and scarier and as it, as it went on and, and sort of more severe. And so it, um, it kind of, it, it, it progressed and, and I wasn't quite sure what was happening, you know, and I, and I wasn't quite sure how to help myself. And so I, I it actually ended up being my friends that, you know, if you think about a turning point, um, my, I, I dropped out of that semester. I had then, it was the summer and my friends kind of encouraged me to come with them to this new town that they were going to go live and work in for the summer. And I didn't really want to do anything, let alone go with them to this new town. And But they really encouraged me semi-forcefully and said, look, you're going to come and, you know, it's going to be great. And so I, I went with them to this new city and I got a job, you know, and I right then I remember feeling like, oh, I did something. You know, sure. like I actually accomplished something. And so I started feeling a little more self-worth. I started meeting new people and that gave me a bit of um, confidence. I started talking about what I was going through for the first time, you know, in a meaning, in a real way. So Who were you talking to? Um, I, was, I was talking to my friends, but ultimately it led into finding a counselor at university. And I found a guy that I really liked to talk to at university. It was just a counselor. So I, I was okay with it, right? I had this, mm-hmm. for me, it was still not cool to talk with a therapist, but this was like a academic counselor. So I was okay with it. He just happened to be also a therapist. <laughs> so he was just a, uh, a guy that I thought really understood me. So ultimately that ended up being a huge thing. So, but at this point, it was sort of this trip that was a turning point and, you know, and, and, and this, recovery took time, you know, and again, we can talk about it later in terms of the actual things that I started to implement. But for this story, like that was the turning point. And what was key was surrounding myself with these people or meeting these new people, these young people that were doing really inspirational things. You know, there was, um, they were starting their own businesses. They were traveling. They were, um, really good storytellers. They were just people that I didn't really know existed at my, in my age, you know? So I, I was surrounded with the people I knew from high school and that was a small sample size of the population. And suddenly I was exposed to all these new people and I was like, wow, some of these, some of these people are really inspiring. So I noticed that the people I surrounded myself made a huge impact on my mood um, and my ambition and my, so I, I thought on the way back from that trip, I thought, well, I guess I should try and surround myself with people like that, like people that inspire me. And so I made a conscious decision to try and do this. And that small decision would absolutely change the rest of my life, you know, and, and, and change the direction of uh, my path. 
Hmm. And so because I, I reached out to a friend of mine who, and in fact, he wasn't really a friend of mine. He was an acquaintance, but I knew him because he took my sister to prom. <laughs> so <laughs> but I, I don't even know if I'd call him a friend. He could have been an enemy. Sure. I don't know. At that point in high school, right? You're sort of yeah. um, protective. So I, 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 but I called him up because he, he was a filmmaker, a self-taught filmmaker who just made videos and movies from around the neighborhood. And he grew up two blocks away from, from us. And so I said, Johnny, uh, let's make a movie. I'd always, I'd always wanted to make a movie with my friends. You know, I thought it'd be so cool to do a TV show with my friends or a mo- make a documentary or a movie with my friends. You know, I love Saturday Night Live and that kind of sketch comedy, but also just the camaraderie that, if, that I felt everyone had on that show. You know, how cool would that be to make something with your friends? So he was all about it. He said, yeah, I was just talking with my friend Dave about this. And I, and I, and I ran into Johnny's older brother, Duncan, in a bar in Victoria. And he was like, we should do something. I was like, I just talked to your brother. Get on Skype. So we all got on Skype and we started talking about a movie. You know, of course, we didn't have an idea for a movie. We just knew that we wanted to make one. And we had all these things that we wanted to do, but we realized we had never done them. And, um, and that is when the poem comes into the picture. Because Johnny was studying at McGill University. He was in first year. English class and the professor assigns him a poem and it's a required reading. And, uh, they say, read the poem. He read it. And something in that poem sort of struck him because he brought it back to us. He says, guys, read this poem. And, and there were four lines in the poem that especially resonated. And those lines were, um, but often in the world's most crowded streets, but often the din of strife, the rise in unspeakable desire, after the knowledge of our buried life. Wow. So this is a, a, a middle-aged man in England 150 years ago, and he's articulating this feeling that we have, that we can't articulate, which essentially is that we have all these things that we want to do, but we haven't done them because they're buried. And they get buried by school or by work or by life. But we have moments of inspiration when we're, when we're fired up but ultimately that gets buried by the day to day. So these moments when I was meeting these young people that were doing cool things, that was the inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, I was they getting triggers. I was, yeah. Exactly. I was getting triggered by certain things, but human nature is that over time that quells is, is, is quelled by the, the rest of your life and the deadlines that you have to hit, et cetera. So we thought, whoa, <laughs> we should call this movie the buried life, even though we didn't know what it was going to be about. So that was the name of the movie. We're like, we're going to call it The Buried Life. And then we thought, how do we unbury ourselves? And we thought, well, let's um, ask this question. What do you want to do before you die? Which ended up being the question that we set out to ask as many people around the world as possible. And uh, for us, the answer to that question was a list. It was a list of all the things that we wanted to do before we died. And... Ultimately, we, when we wrote this list, we pretended we could do anything. And we pretended we had $100 million in our bank account when we wrote the list. So the list was intentionally grossly audacious. So it was like, go to space, make a TV show, uh, write a number one New York Times bestseller, sit with Oprah, have a beer with Prince Harry, you know, tell a judge you want the truth, you can't handle the truth. All these like... <laughs> That's on everyone's list. Yeah. <laughs> And, and then we thought, okay, there's no way we can do any of these list items, the majority of these list items on our own. So every time we cross something off our list, let's help a stranger we meet do something that they want to do. So everywhere we go, we'll ask this question that we're setting out to ask as many people as possible. What do you want to do before you die? And if we can actually help with this answer that they give us, we'll do it, right? So that's the mission. So we're like, okay. We're going to take two weeks off our summer jobs before we go back to university this next summer, go after our list, help other people, and um, we'll do as many as we can in two weeks, and we'll make a movie. So that was the, that's, that was the mission in 2006. That's amazing. You know, when you, if you think back when you're, all of you were going through this, was it just one of those moments where, where things were just coming together? Because I feel like the way you told that, story and how it developed it was 
you know, you, you, you talked to the, you know, to the one guy and then you, you met his brother in the bar kind yeah. of this, that night. And then all of a sudden the poems coming in and it's like, it's almost a little bit freaky for that stuff to play out the way it did. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss as I'm sure yeah. many people are, but my mic's sitting on his book right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, He's supporting this conversation. <laughs> um, exactly. So he says, when you go, you know, when you go to make a decision or, or start something, I guess is it's um, the question you should ask yourself is what would it look like if it were easy and then run through that. And then, you know, essentially just try and do that. <laughs> like we have this sort of misconception that is as entrepreneurs or there's this struggle that is inherent and it must be a struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true to a certain extent. You have to work hard, but it has to work. Like things have to be like um, almost, you know, you can call it serendipity or you can just call it ease. But like there has to be this momentum that starts to build that ultimately starts to, it begins to create this inertia that is of its own, you know, where you're not pushing every single block forward. It's like the blocks are moving or the wheel is moving. Um and you have to work hard, and but and, and there also there's going to be moments when you have to take risks. Like there are, you are risking something uh, that is ultimately, I would say, probably most people would end up shying away from because it's too much of a risk. But the actual pieces are moving, and like it's working, um, and that's what was happening. Was this thing was starting to come together. People were, we, the first person I cold called, we, we raised money for this tour by throwing parties at University of Victoria and they worked <laughs> like sure. a lot of people came. It was a lot of fun. We loved it. It was, you know, but, but the first person I cold called, you know, this is back when phone books still were around out of the phone book, it was a juice company in Vancouver called Happy Planet. And I pretended we had a production company and that I was the CEO of the production company and that we were making a documentary and they would want to be a part of it. And the assistant or the, you know, whoever picked up their phone calls, I said, I need to talk with the CEO. This is a really big opportunity. <laughs> and she put me right through <laughs> yeah. the founder wow. of the company. And I was so scared. You know, I was just like, what am I doing? I don't know what I'm going to say. And I just was honest. I just told him this idea that we had. And, and, and I'm, I'm not, you, you can't make this up. He said, and he was like this ex hippie kind of guy who started this juice company. He was a man. And he said, he said, man, I'm going to tell you this. You're on a golden nugget. And he said to me, he said, you're on a, you're sitting on a golden nugget. He said, a lot of people are going to tell you that you can't do this, but you can't listen to them. And wow. he gave us $2,000 to pay for our gas. And we had, you know, we worked two summer jobs that summer we bought a camera on eBay. We built our own website. We made matching t-shirts. We bored an RV from a friend's uncle, or sorry, Johnny and Duncan, two of the boys in the group, their uncle, t- towed it out of a swamp so we could like <laughs> make get it running. We got stuff donated from, you know, anywhere from local skate shops to give skateboards away to people that we met along the way, to Red Bull giving us Red Bull, to granola bar companies giving us granola bars so we lived for two weeks in this rv off of red bull granola bars and juice from this juice company (laughs) the ideal diet yeah so like it was a lot of it was a ton of work and it was but it was as you mentioned the pieces were falling into place um but i mentioned there's like this there's these moments where you just have to take risks like you have to get over yourself at some point and your fears whatever they may be, because that's generally what stops people from yeah. doing these things is the fear of looking bad or the fear of failure. And there was this moment, you know, and I mentioned the moment of calling this, the head of the juice company, and that was one big, scary moment. But the real moment was, it's the night before we're leaving, you know, we've got everything together. And we decide that we have to take this RV to the mechanic 
to get him just to have someone look at it to make sure that it one it's safe to drive and two that it'll make it back because we don't have enough money to tow this thing back um, if it breaks down right um, sure and the mechanic says you this won't make it back <laughs> you know like not like there's a fifty percent chance this might make <laughs> break down he's like not gonna happen <laughs> this will not make it back so. Now we're like, well, crap. <laughs> we're sitting yeah. on the curb the night before we're supposed to go. And, 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 and I'm thinking, we, like, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> you know, we probably shouldn't. We, we got to rethink this. Should we even, this is stupid. Like, what are we even doing? We're like going out on a, in a shitty RV, like going after these dreams that like will never happen, helping people. Like, how are we even going to help people? You know, we're supposed to go after all these list and help all these people for two weeks. Like, you know, and, and a lot of people are also like, we're making phone calls to try and get sponsors and people are literally saying, we're not going to fund your booze cruise. Yeah. You know, like they don't, people don't understand. And, and I remember Dave sitting on the side of the curb said, we're going, we've come this far. There's no way we're not going. And that was it. I was just like, all right. I guess we're going to do this. And so we, the next day we went to cross off the first list item, which was to be a knight in shining armor. And I was able to get like a full suit of armor from this woman that usually rented it for a hundred dollars a day for two hours for free. And I got in this stupid knight's uniform and we had called all the media in Victoria, BC down to like promise this big stunt and so all these news cameras were waiting for us as we pulled up in our 1977 Dodge Coachman RV. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? Like, I, I don't have a stunt. I can barely walk in this armor. I mean, this is full chain mail and like a helmet and a sword. And I walk out of the <laughs> RV in summer and I'm sweating inside like bullets. And, I, and, I, and it's just this awkward silence. And the cameras are like, okay, <laughs> what's, what's happening? Dance and, monkey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and then there's this six-year-old boy walking with his mom holding her hand and in his other hand, he's holding a plastic sword. And he looks at me as if I'm just God and his sure. drops his mom's hand, runs over to me, doesn't say anything, just takes a knee and then bows his head right in front of me. <laughs> so I, I knight him. Wow. Right? I mean, I, yeah. Of course. I, what I, else I are you going to do? Rules. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I can knight him. I am a knight. I'm not quite sure how it works, but I knighted him. And then all of these kids are coming out of the woodwork, you know, and they all surround me in a semicircle, kneeling down with their heads down. So I start knighting all of these kids and I, I'm shepherding, you know, I'm, I'm walking with them across the street, you know, and, uh, and so it's kind of this serendipitous moment. You talk about the, yeah. the pieces falling into place. And so we're like, okay, cool. Like we just crossed off a list time. We haven't even left yet. Right. It's great. So we, sure. so officially the next day we go to leave and we're going, you know, taking the ferry to Vancouver to leave for this two week road trip. We pick up the paper on the way and we realize that we've actually crossed off two list items. The second being number seven, make the front page of the newspaper. And there I am with this little boy holding his hand, crossing the street. He's holding his plastic sword. I'm holding my big outrageous metal sword. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't even be able to walk around with that thing. And, you know, it's the title is it's a great day to be a knight or something. And now we've crossed off two things. Wow. And this starts the kind of the media catching wind of this project and the next thing we cross off is open six o'clock news and we just camp out at the biggest news station in vancouver until they you know are forced to let us open six o'clock news sure <laughs> and you know and all of a sudden people are starting to hear about this crazy road trip these four guys are going on and they're seeing our list online and we're getting strangers reach out to us saying, hey i saw your list number nine ride a bull my uncle is a bull ranch. He can help you or, you know, make a toast to strangers wedding. I can help or, you know, all these things that are on our list. And then people sending us their dreams of things that they want to do on their bucket list, asking for help. So this was a complete surprise, right? We didn't expect this to, this kind of, this, I didn't expect this response. And sure. um, 
so this starts this journey where we're now people are helping us. We're helping other people through the help of other people. And we're crossing off list items that we never thought we could. And we are helping people that we have no business helping, you know, but this momentum is building and suddenly there are hundreds, you know, and thousands of emails in our inbox that we've created our crew at the, at the buriedlife.com of people wanting to help us cross every single list item off our list and, you know, throwing us their dreams, asking for help. So we come back after this two weeks and we're like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> sure. You know, and this is, and one of those emails happens to be from a producer that saw us in the news. And he's like, I, th- I saw you on the news. Have you ever thought about making a TV show? And so we're like, well, you know, one of the things on the list is to make a TV show. And we end up going to Toronto and talking with the networks in Toronto about making a show. And we, we get offered a TV show which ultimately we turn down because they want to own it and we don't want to give up control. So we go back to school and we raise more money through the school year and then we buy a big purple bus and we get a crew from LA to follow us the next summer for instead of two weeks, it's two months. And we're filming the documentary still. Hmm. And you know the journey continues. And so we're just doing this sort of in the summers in between school, kind of collecting all this footage and, you know, continuing to cross off things we never thought we could and helping other people. And, um, you know, until ultimately we think like we really want to make the TV show, but our way. So instead of pitching the show, we just decided to edit our own episode, a pilot of doing something on our list and helping someone else. And I met someone that knew someone in LA and I went down there on a whim and started meeting people and production companies and then ultimately networks and over a year and a half, got a meeting with MTV in New York and flew out there with the boys and we pitched them the idea and they liked it. And we said, we'll do it. If we're executive producers, we hire our crew who has been following us for two years as the TV crew. We choose the episodes and the list items and edit the episodes and the music. And you guys don't help us with anything. And we said, yes. It's <laughs> amazing. Ben, did you ever, there's so much I want to ask you about that, but did did you guys ever think, like, where was the moment where you guys said, you know, this is more than just a summer project? Was there, was there a turning point there? Yeah. I I think the first moment was when we first helped somebody. Okay. And we, we helped this guy who used to live in a homeless shelter who um, got out of the homeless shelter by really, you know, starting his own landscaping business. Um. And his truck had broken down. So this was obviously the, the, he couldn't landscape if he didn't have a truck. And we, we basically bought him a truck. You know, we found this used car. This, it was really because of the generosity of a, of, a, of, a, of a used car salesman dealer, you know, the owner of a dealership who gave us a $2,100 truck for 480 bucks. And, um, and we gave him the truck. And we drove it up to him and the moment like he saw it and he understood what was going on and he hugged me and like his reaction to this sort of random act of generosity, um, it just had an impact on all of us. And we all sort of, this is the first time we'd ever helped someone, you know, really. So we thought we got to keep doing this, you know, this is really cool. And, you know, and then as it, as we like checked, then I remember I was in so cool. We, people just helped us everywhere. Like we, we, this, this owner of a Greek restaurant and, you know, brought us in and gave, like fed us for free, you know, and told us stories of the Greek word for living without fear. And which is the end what Dave ended up tattooing on his ankle. Cause one of the things on the list was to get a tattoo. Uh, it was like Afava or something. Okay. Um, and so, it was a, you know, and I remember for the first time checking this, this inbox, this crew at the Buried Life with Johnny that we had, we had created. I was sitting with him. We were eating Greek food in this restaurant and he was just like, yo, check this out. And we just looked at this inbox and it was just hundreds of emails of everybody wanting to help us and then sending us their dreams. And you just, I just had this, remember this feeling of being like, whoa, something's going on. It's amazing. Um, and so, yeah, so it was really just kind of this, this, this feeling of like, this is, 
way big. We've hit a nerve, something, this is bigger than us. And so, you know, we continue to feel that throughout the the years to come. And, you know, the the irony is this two-week road trip ended up lasting, you know, over 12 years where we continue to cross things off our list and continue to help people and also sort of spread this message of why it's important to prioritize your own personal goals and that you can you can do it because what we've learned is that you can actually do anything you want you know you just yeah depends on what you want to put your mind to because all of these things that we were convinced were impossible have happened uh, things that we have no business doing but have somehow come to fruition so sure this uh so yeah it, it's uh it's you know and, and ultimately we once the show happened with MTV, we moved to LA and we crossed off things like write a book and, you know, we continued to create content that is sort of in line with the buried life DNA and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, now finally we're finishing the documentary, which we started, which we thought would take two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I want to highlight that though, because the theme, I think the theme developing in this conversation is again, you know, building momentum. And but building momentum from a place that comes from a really solid purpose and solid vision, which, as you mentioned, right, you you had the title for the movie before you even knew what was going to be in the movie, and mm-hmm. which which is so key because it's it's I, I truly believe it's those type of moments and that type of reflection that gets you from the point where you're sitting on the curb and say, no, you know, we've come this far, we have to do it because you're right. I mean, I'm, we're experiencing this just with Keo. I mean, you're, you're throwing things almost daily that could easily stimulate you. You know, I'm going to throw in the towel. That's enough. Like there's, there's an easier path here. Right. But something has to be pushing you. And, you know, thankfully you guys uh, had that figured out in, in, in everyone and you had people to rely on you as, or rely on each other, right. To kind of push each other. I'm, I'm imagining through those, those years. Cause that's the other thing. It, what you just mentioned, it's been 12 years. Mm-hmm. Like you see some of, you see the episodes, you see some of the press in the, you know, in the media and all of that. And you automatically assume that this is like this overnight success and these guys are just killing it on every front. And, but no, you're, I mean, you're working at this day in and day out for literally 12 years. Yeah. Still working on the list, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's amazing. No, it's, yeah, and you don't, you know, it's it's even in an hour conversation, you can't even really get into the minutia of the struggle. Sure. You know, and it's, it's, it's so much easier to talk about the good stuff, <laughs> you know, to then to talk about the hard stuff. But I think it's, it's, as you know, I mean, it's important. I mean, there's, there was the, the, you know, intense depression in the beginning, you know, there was another big down after our second tour in 2007, after year two of being on the road, where once we had turned down the TV show and everyone thought we were idiots for turning down the TV show, by the way, like yeah, no one course. thought that was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't even know why we were like, we were just like, nah, no, we're doing it on our own. You know, it was just yeah. kind of, we were so naive. Like that's it that's the beauty of being young is you just don't know any better. And sometimes that really serves you yeah. because that naivete, it was what fueled us, you know? And, so and if we knew how much work it was going to be, no way would we have done it. Yeah. No way. We would have been like, no thanks. Like I'm going to go this route because I'm not going to have to go through all that, you know, doing the TV show our way on our, on our own. Oh my God. Like not only was it so expensive where we took, you know, we had raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars from sponsors that we poured into this documentary that we never took a dime from. We mm-hmm. didn't, we, we, were naive. we didn't even know any, we didn't know about paying yourself. We're like, sure. Nope, it's all going in. <laughs> you know, <laughs> then we're broke. Then we don't have our own TV show. We come back from this two year journey collecting all this footage and realize how expensive post-production is. And we under, we realize that there's no buyer. Who's going to buy this documentary? <laughs> Nobody. It's 2007. There's no Netflix. There's no Hulu. There's no Amazon. Maybe you get a festival darling. If you even get into the festivals and maybe they buy it off you. <laughs> but like, yeah. not if you don't finish it because it's going to cost another $250,000 or $100,000 to edit it and finish it properly. So picture us 
we've turned down a TV show. We, we have all this footage that we now feel like is wasted. We've, um, are now I'm working at a bar in Vancouver and I don't even know how to bartend. <laughs> like, and I've dropped out of school and I, all my friends are graduating. Right. Yeah. And wow. No one really even knows what we've been doing because we haven't been able to showcase anything. You know, there's been some press about it, but like, looks like a cool road trip. Nice guys. Like, you know, it's sort of, we haven't been able to really show anybody what's going on. Yeah. And now I am now starting to get depressed because I'm like, fuck, well, sure. we made a huge mistake. And so I'm in Vancouver and working at a bar, you know, and, um, but thank God we were, you know, it was, there was four of us. I would have thrown in the towel. Many, we all would have thrown in the towel if it wasn't for working with four, you know, three other guys that, you know, picked the other people up when we were, when one of us was down. And, uh, and so then, you know, I just, I met this, you know, random person when I was with my parents in the Baja who knew someone in LA and I just did a random trip down there. And everyone I talked to was like, oh, this is awesome. Let's do this. <laughs> and I came back and I'm like, guys, I think like we still have something. And I started doing these trips and like refueling the fire. So it took a year and a half to get this TV show. And, you know, and we had, and then <laughs> if I knew how hard it was to make a TV show, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like now cut to, we're making a TV show. We are so invested in this. Like this is our baby. We're not letting anyone do anything <laughs> if we're not involved and we lose two years of our life. It's a black hole. I don't even remember doing <laughs> anything else, but making that show and we would sleep in the edit base. You know, we would, we lived in a four bedroom apartment in LA. We shared a car. We didn't have any other friends. We started becoming the same people. Like it was, so then there's another dark, dark time. <laughs> and then, you know, coming out of, of the show and it's just like so all these things are it as i said like things i feel like need to be there needs to be an ease in the in the progression like things need to be working um and if it doesn't if it's not working you need to think of a of a different path if you feel like you're on a hamster wheel things need to be moving forward but you also need to know you gotta work really really hard and that you're gonna have to take risks you know and uh, really evaluate those risks because our, is, is the risk made up? Is it fear that is created? You know? That's key. Like, or is it fear that's real? Because there's two types of fear. There's real fear, which is you're running away from a lion. And your, your life is on the line. Uh, another real fear is, you know, can I, um, uh, can I provide the basic essentials to my well-being? Right? Food, shelter. Yeah. Well-being. Um, but, you know, a lot of the, the other field, fear is, is, man, is your, it's made up. It's, it's fear of looking bad or it's fear of, you know, this mention, um, failing, right? The irony is by failing, you actually learn much more than by not doing. You know, that's how you actually grow. Sure. So, well, can we talk about that, Ben? Because that, that's, that's an important part, and especially in, in a lot of the mental fitness stuff that we're doing. I've noticed in myself, even just writing out or releasing the fears that that I have going through this journey and, and life in general, that I think you nailed it. A lot of it's manifested, right? Like we're our own TV producer in a lot of cases where 95% of these things don't even come close to coming to fruition, right? But we've already orchestrated the whole movie of this fear, right? Mm -hmm. So how did you you personally handle some of this and, and maybe we can get into some of those darker moments. Like what were, what were the ways that you were managing the fears and, and releasing them and allowing you to, to continue forward? Well, partially was, um, talking about it, you know, and having a, uh, a good support system, like talking about these things to people that I cared about, I loved, um, or a therapist, you know, um, part of it was, was having the support of the other guys so that it just wasn't as scary when you're doing it with your friends. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, uh, a kind of <laughs> a flippant example is streaking a field and getting away with it. You know, I, it just, I would never do that on my own. You know, it just, <laughs> but it's, 
uh, one, we just had to. It was, it was what we were, it's the other guys were, everyone was doing it. So everybody was doing it. So you just were forced into these situations that you, where you were uncomfortable and ultimately coming out the other side being like, oh, that actually wasn't as bad as I thought, you know, competing in a crump competition in self, you know, in <laughs> Compton. Like it just, I can't dance. Like why, why would I ever want to do that? I wouldn't. Sure. Um, and I didn't want to do it. And I was terrified, but I came out of it being like, wow, that was like, I surprised myself. How has that helped you today? I think it just, you realize that you're much more capable than you are. You know, your mind is always going to tell you that you're, that you're less capable. So you just try not to listen to that as much. You just trust that you are somebody you, you can do it. You know, that you, that I start to feel this feeling and it's, I've, I've changed what the feeling means, you know, instead of anxiety, I I've realized that's actually just excitement. So it's a very similar feeling, anxiety and excitement. And once you change their, what you've, the definition of that feeling, um, it really changes the entire feeling itself. That's you know, really you interesting. Shifting. So there's, there's also this feeling of when I, feel like I don't want to do something. Let's, for instance, let's just say this commencement address that I recently did for the University of Utah. Uh, I really didn't want to do it. <laughs> like, there's a lot of reasons why. Well, you know, I knew it was going to be terrifying. Uh, I knew that it was going to take a ton of work. I knew that it was, you know, my parents were probably going to come, you know, my yeah. family. It's a big one. <laughs> you know, there that I... There was going to be a ton of pressure, and then I, which means I knew that I had to do it. <laughs> like when I start to get that feeling, I'm like, "Fuck, yeah." Because <laughs> in the back of my mind, I'm like, "I got to do it," because I know it's going to be a challenge. I know I'm going to grow. I know it's going to push me. I know I'm going to come out the other end, being like, "I can feel." It's like a hyper growth. You like in that short amount of time, you're like, "Whoa!" You can actually like you can feel how much you have progressed from when you started and also when you, you go into it. And it's like that same thing happened with my TEDx talk. You know, the same thing happened when I talk about things that I'm not comfortable speaking about, like mental health and depression and, you know, all those, all of the things that are in that sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, and now I kind of, used as a barometer for what I should be doing. You know, I, I, because I know that that is a potential personal growth, you know, moment. And, um, you got to seek that discomfort. You really do. You know, it sucks, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the truth. You have to step into that discomfort because that's when you are really going to, you're going to press like fast forward on your growth. Um, and you're going to surprise yourself. And then you're going to think anything else you do after that, you're going to be like, well, it's not as bad as the commencement address that I did in front of 10,000 people, you know, wearing a robe where I looked like Harry Potter, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's just not, everything else is just not like, I, you know, I, I, and then I'm at the commencement. I'm like, well, it's not as bad as streaking in front of 10,000 people and getting arrested. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know? Or, you know, trying to ask out Megan Fox on the red carpet and completely blowing it and then having that air in front of millions of people. <laughs> you know, like you put those on those situation where it's really, even if you fail, it's a, it's a plus, you know, you've, you've learned something. At least you've, you know, the, the edges of where you're capable of, you know, pushing towards. And so that is, I think, something that a lot of people shy away from because it's, Makes sense. It's uncomfortable. Well, it's not normal, right? It's, it's, yeah, it's not normal. Not normal. But also every, every fiber in your body is telling you don't do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you're physically having a reaction towards a lot of this stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's the tricky part is like, well, but it's made up. That's not real fear. You know, the physical reaction you get when someone's coming at you with a knife is real. That's real fight or flight. You know, listen to that. But don't listen to the fight or flight when someone's like, hey, I want you to, you know, speak in front of these, these people. That's, that's made up. 
I love that, Ben. And I love the idea of reframing, reframing anxiety, reframing that, that fear into excitement, right? And then taking that energy and, and really putting it towards whether it's the talk or like, it doesn't matter what you're doing, but, but reframing it and, and almost rechanneling that energy. I mean, that's something we could use on a daily basis in, in some capacity, right? Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing all that. that. That's great. And I totally agree with you or support your, your message on uh, the way I even look at the, what we're building, you know, the, the, almost the harder it is, the, the more we know we're going to get out of it long-term right in terms of growth and like satisfaction on what we're trying to do here so it's and, and it's an exercise of reframing essentially mm-hmm. um amazing so uh, listen i want to be conscious of your time here uh, we, we talked a little bit about uh, some of your mental fitness but what i'd really like to know is now you're you, you're spending a lot more time speaking right and and congratulations to you by the way and i thank you for from me and, and the other millions of people that are part of, of the Keo community to be vulnerable yourself and actually talk about mental fitness or brain fitness, uh, which encompasses mental health and all of that, right? What, you know, what shifted you to really having a desire to, to really start talking about this? Because you just finished saying that that's something that makes you uncomfortable, right? Yeah, yeah. It was... The same feeling that I mentioned where when I started speaking, you know, a lot more, I knew that I needed to talk about it, you know, because I knew that because the thought of it made me feel uncomfortable, but I, I, I knew the impact that it has or that it, you know, could have on other people when I, um, if, if I would, were to be vulnerable, right? Because I had mentioned it on the show we had helped, I, we wanted to help someone that was struggling with mental health or, you know, behavior health on the show. And that was kind of our, one of our big goals. And so we helped a girl who struggled with self-injury. She, she cut herself um, and she wanted to make it okay to talk about it in her hometown, small hometown of, um, in Minnesota. And so I did that story because we all would do stories that we felt personally tied to. And I did that story. So I went and met her and I told her, I said, look, I know... I, I, I know what it's like to struggle and I have struggled with depression and, you know, I found by talking about it, it helps. And so I, you know, I'm here for you. And the immediate inpouring of comments and emails and, you know, messages after that episode aired was just overwhelming. So I thought there's definitely something there. And I started learning about this, the, the, where we're at right now with, with suicides yeah. and mental health. And so I just like, the, that combined with this feeling that I would get when I thought about it, which was fear and being uncomfortable, you know, I was like, okay, crap, I guess I gotta, I gotta talk about this. So I, the first time I spoke about it, I was so nervous that I, when I spoke about it on stage, I had to ball my fists because my hands were shaking so much. So my, my hands were still shaking, but they were in fists. So it wasn't as noticeable. Sure. And I, the next time I talked about it, they were shaking a little bit less and then a little bit less the next time, a little bit less to, you know, cut forward, cut forward to where it's, I don't get, I'm not nervous about it. I enjoy talking about it because I can see the impact it's having in the moment with people that are looking at me. And I know that afterwards, there's going to be a ton of people coming up to talk to me afterwards because that always happens. So it's the most powerful part of my presentation because I'm actually like being really real with people and I can see how much it's affecting them in their eyes. And, mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity now, right? It's, it's like this sort of, I realize that this is a gift, not a weakness. And reframing that. Yeah. So that is like, I think most people can see that this thing they thought was their weakness is actually their greatest strength, you know, especially yeah. these hyper successful people because everyone's in balance, you know, it's just, it, yeah, there's two ends of the scale. Um, and usually the people that are imbalanced too are also hyper really good at something. They're a great musician or they're a very successful entrepreneur, but they may not, you know, they may struggle with anxiety or they may struggle with this. It's like that is the human condition. So, um, 
you know, to human, to be human is to struggle, right? And so my thing is like, look, everybody is human. We can all agree on that. Therefore, we can all agree that everyone struggles because if you don't struggle, you're a robot. Like you just, it's, it's it, the Buddha says to be human is to struggle. So I trust him. And hmm. basically, if we can agree that everyone struggles, then why is it this thing stigmatized? How can mental health be stigmatized? How can something be stigmatized that affects everybody? It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. Yeah. It's just that people are afraid to talk about it. But once they do, they realize a few things. One, that they're not alone. Two, that when they talk about it, there's less power. This thing that you think that's in your mind, just like this thing that you're afraid of doing, like speaking in front of people, when you do it or when you start to talk about it and get into action, you realize that, oh, it actually doesn't, isn't as scary as you actually thought and it actually has less power to the point where you actually shift the entire power dynamic so that you end up having power over it instead of it having power over you. So true. And you start to learn about yourself. It's just, again, this self-growth opportunity where you start to realize, okay, what do I need to be healthy? And what do I need to take care of myself? Um, and what can I learn from other people or from a therapist or from, you know, podcasts, whatever. So the, this conversation, you know, has opened up a lot for me. And I think that the more people that have an, an audience that can talk about their own personal struggles, the better. And, you know, even if you don't just having the conversation with somebody helps because honestly, this conversation saves lives. It literally saves lives. A simple check-in with a friend. Hey, how are you doing? What the problem is, is that we talk around it now. So the conversation goes, if you see a friend that looks like they're feeling down is let's just call his name, his name's, you know, Matt. We say, we text a friend. We say, Hey, is Matt okay? What we need to do is we need to text Matt and say, Hey Matt, are you okay? Yeah. Because talking around it is not serving anybody. Stigma is not serving anybody. A lot of these things are, are just a huge disservice to everyone. So there's just some basic, simple stuff that I feel like is, is a cultural, you know, it, it needs to change culturally, you know, around the language, around the conversations, around um, a lot of the things like medication and therapy that are highly stigmatized. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all the work that you're doing, it's just, it's, it's education. It's this awareness and this conversation will be mainstream in, you know, three to five years. It has to be, there's too many people dying. So just like LGBTQ was five or so years ago where no one talked about it was taboo. And now it's in every single conversation and it's a political conversation. This is the same thing. It's the wave is crashing, but it, it can't crash too soon. So I'm just trying you know, with you and all these other folks, just trying to move that forward quicker. I agree. And obviously support, support that goal. And, and, and I, from the, the core of my being truly believe as well, that the concept of a gym for your mind will be part of our everyday language, um, hopefully sooner than, than we think, but I, I think it is, it is starting to move, but you're right. We need to, there's just so many, so many st- stigma so much stigma and so many perceptions around just talking about this and i'm glad we're talking about it but and you use you've used this example before with with coaches right in in basketball and any sport but and it's two-sided right they're like a coach's job is is to also notice if, if a player is you know something's up and needs guidance but then on the other side too it you know it's okay you say, hey i want to work on my jump shot can you help me out it's no different for your mind. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can get to that point, like that's where we'll, we'll be talking about this, uh, in our regular vocabulary and, and, and it's normal because it's just, I mean, the mind is, is no different than the rest of our body parts. Right. We've, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's motivating that, that, that it's shifting, which, which is exciting, but I agree with you. Let's, let's shift it faster. So, yeah. So I have to thank you for um, being a part of our journey to help that shift and, and look forward to other initiatives that we can do together to, to, to help move that forward. Um, one of them being questions. A lot of the questions, there's a lot of great questions uh, left in this conversation that you've already provided. But I think even going right back to how everything started with you and the guys, but 
uh, there are some powerful questions being thrown around and some reflection and thought, right? So, mm-hmm. I really want to get to just to wrap up to be conscious of, the, of time because I feel like this could have been a long form Tim Ferriss interview. <laughs> Maybe we'll have yeah. to do a part two. Um, what are three reflective questions, Ben, that, that float around in, in your mind on either a frequent basis or during big life-changing events? So the, I'll have to say that the, the main, the main question is what do you want to do before you die? Sure. Uh, you know, which is obvious, but I, I'll mention this because I think this is really, if you only get one thing out of this whole conversation, I think it should be this, that there's a new study that came out by, uh, Cornell university. It was five, it was actually six studies, but they wrote one paper called the ideal road not taken. And they found that the, the single biggest regret that people have at the end of their life is not regretting things they did. It's regretting things they didn't do. So when researchers asked, what is the number one thing you regret? It is 76% of people said it wasn't living their ideal life. So that means that over three quarters of the population are going to hit the end of their life and lay in their bed as they are dying and look back and reflect and think, damn it, I didn't do the thing. I wasn't myself. Mm. And so it's so, it's human. It's not our fault. This is what happens. This is human nature to procrastinate our personal goals, right? It's, it's, there's no deadline around them. There's nothing to, to, to really make us feel like there's an urgency. We feel like we're going to live forever. It's just like, even if we're in our, you know, fifties and sixties, from what I've heard, it's just like something that is inherent in us that these things move down the totem pole in priority, but we need to keep them top of mind. You're right. That is so heartbreaking. That statistic that more than three quarters of the population, when the, at the at their end of the life, regret not doing something like that is mm-hmm. out of fear. That is something that's so. I so that is whatever you can do, whatever question you can ask yourself to remind yourself that you are going to die. So and, and that you should really take time to make sure you're doing some things that are uh, important to you personally, and that it's okay to prioritize those things. It's not selfish. It's for your own well being. You know, that, you know, so what do you want to do before you die is uh, for us works. So that's, that's one question. Um, and, you know, so, so, and then two other questions that, uh, that I asked myself is, is, is how can I, um, how can I take, uh, time for myself alone? You know, how can I take some alone time? Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's something that I, that I tend to not do. And then how can I help someone else? And, you know, I think that especially if you feel down, helping someone else is, is a great way to take yourself out of your own head and actually, one, connect with someone else with helps when, when you're feeling down. For sure. And also, you can't think about how bad you feel when you're thinking about someone else. So, you know, that is just a great way to, to, to get yourself out of your own head and do something that actually is going to make you feel good and fill you up. So love it. These are, these are really, really good, Ben. Thank you for, for sharing those. And the, the last question that I want to leave you with is if you think back over the last, you know, few years or so, you know, what, what, what really is making you smile? Um, (laughs) I, I just think that when I, look back at, uh, this path that has brought me here, you know, now I live in Venice beach and in LA and the, 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 just how ridiculous it all is. It's just so, uh, so outrageous. I just would never have predicted anything close to this. Um, but that like the irony is that when, you know, when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love. And that's this big lesson that I've learned that, you know, I didn't think that was the case back when we started Barry Life. I didn't think anyone would care about what we love to do. Um, but, but what happened was people, they, they got inspired to do what they love, you know? So I think that, you know, this whole journey has been about doing what we love and, and trying to chase that excitement and that curiosity and that passion. Um, and, and ultimately that has helped other people, which is such a cool thing. It feels like the ultimate win-win. 
So, you know, thinking about that and the ridiculous, this is a funny, you know, things that we, we've done or the situations we put ourselves in, um, and that it's all ultimately helped other people think about the things they want to do. It just makes me smile. Well, that's a beautiful, beautiful way to wrap this up and let's keep rocking things out there. Keep spreading this message, keep the conversation, the dialogue going and, you know, a huge thanks for committing the last 12 years of your life as well as the the other guys uh, on this mission to, you know, really show that the impossible is possible to put the mindset out there to challenge yourselves and inspire others along the way. So thank you for from all of us. Thank you so much. 